Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Troy. I'm here with Dr. Josh and Marquis, and today we are going to be talking about how our environment affects our health. Not just our environment as far as the outdoors, but even indoor environment, our relationships, just the, just the spaces around you and everything that you are exposed to. It's a broad topic, we're going to focus on some specific things, but sometimes these things are the, the stuff that sneak in there that you don't know it's impacting your health and it can be pretty um, hard on your health, but it can also be pretty life-changing when you clean up some of this stuff. So let's talk a little bit about our environment and how it affects our health. Yeah. So Troy, tell me, who's toxic in this world? Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember a study uh, where they, they looked for a place on the planet that didn't have a known toxin. And they couldn't find it, and then eventually did. The only place on the planet that they couldn't identify a toxin with a sample was when they bore into the ice uh, about uh, the equivalent of 100 years ago, basically. So at that time, that would have been in the 90s. And so that would have been, we're looking at 120, 130 years ago. Uh, they were taking samples out of the ice in, in North Pole, I think, somewhere, one of the poles. Yeah. And they got down to uh, approximately 100 years ago, uh, pre-Industrial Revolution, and that was the first sample of ice with no no toxins identified in it. Wow. Have you seen the recent stuff on the microplastics? No. So microplastics are small, tiny, microscopic particles of plastic. You know, we have plastic all over the place because we've been making pl plastic for, you know, 50 years plus. Yep. And they've been able to now find these small things of plastic inside of humans and other animals' bloodstreams even. So it's small enough that we're drinking it, eating it, breathing it in, and it's getting into our systems. Nobody knows what the impact of that is. Yeah, we, can, we can speculate there'd be like micro traumas. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because just like your blood vessels, it's, it's there's water and there's fluid. So just picture like a little tube, like uh, in the ocean or something, and these little unknown chemicals or heavier metals are floating in there, but every time they kind of land on the bottom of the that tube or the ground, they're they're nicking it a little bit, and that that's our blood vessels. So yeah. you can speculate that there's going to be some some damage until we study it. We won't know, but um, there there's there's problems there. Yeah, a lot of these toxins that we'll talk about at its lowest level, they're creating inflammation. Yeah, and they're creating it in different ways, some worse than others, and so that's why when we when we have a an individual come into our clinic and assessing toxins, I tell people two things. One, I know you're toxic already, yes. <laughs> like we talked about. And two, doing a toxin test tells us a lot about your current exposure and what might be most relevant for your health. Yeah, and your ability or inability to clear those toxins. Because really, uh, in today's age, it really boils, that, boils down to how well do you clear your toxins. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing, uh, speaking of ice and water, I know Japan currently is mining uh, the ice in the South Pole and selling the water from that because of its purity. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that's the Japanese. They, yeah, <laughs> they're all about their high-end stuff. I I'm not sure if, uh, I don't <laughs> know what the price is, but it, might, it wouldn't be surprised me if it was like three or $400. It probably tastes like water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pure, though. Yeah, pure water. Yeah. Yeah. So toxin really is anything that the body doesn't know what to do with, right? So yeah, it's, it's exactly. one of those things where toxins can be from man-made things. Some, some natural things are toxic too, to some degree, but it's something that the body looks at and says, well, I don't have any use for this. I want to get rid of it. Yeah. And it either gets rid of it or it stores it in your body. Mm -hmm. And again, the best storage in your body is fat because it's an insulator. Same thing like with toxic um, explosives. Uh, they buried all of the, the explosives in the desert of, in Nevada mm -hmm. in these big insulated drums. And so our insulator in our bodies are fat. So if your liver, kidneys, lungs, skin, or GI tract can't get rid of the toxins, it gets reabsorbed and stored as fat. This is actually one of the things that can cause some people to not lose weight as efficiently because they have a, a toxic burden in their fat. And the, the system internally is, is fairly intelligent and will not release that fat uh, if it's going to cause a, a massive problem. Now, if you end up completely fasting and it has no choice because it's got to burn that fat for energy, and then you release the toxins. And people will, will see this because we have 
all kinds of reports back from patients of foul-smelling urine or stool or even patients that have come in and their skin has broken out as they detoxify and uh, get rid of some of these these, these toxic uh, overloads in their system. Yeah. A lot of these toxins are problematic because, and this is to the storage point too, over time, over your life, they'll start to accumulate. We see this in other animals too, bioaccumulation of toxins. Yeah. And so it's, it's not, it's not a, a matter of for all of these, oh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll breathe it in, I'll drink it, and, but then my body's going to get rid of it, right? Yeah. I'm going to detoxify it. Well, that's, that's not always true. You see this in animals too. This is why we talked fish oil on a, on a podcast in Mercury and why you have to be careful taking a fish oil supplement because some of those big fish will bioaccumulate mercury from yeah. their diets. The same thing. It stores in the fat, just like we're talking about here. Well, and you said a very, very key thing there. Which I'll expand on. Did I? Yes. Yeah, you did. <laughs> what was it? Yeah. <laughs> Mar- Pause because, yeah, Marquis like, he did? <laughs> nobody, uh, yeah, nobody it, can recognize my genius. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's the bioaccumulation. The majority of research takes one chemical and says, is this chemical safe? And what's the safety uh, level of that chemical? And so they'll test it and they'll say, okay, in this quantity, it causes damage here. But the problem is when we bioaccumulate... And back again in the mid-2000s, um, at, at uh, that point in time, they had 85,000 chemicals that had not been assessed yet by the FDA. That's 85,000 chemicals where they don't know what they're doing to our body. So bioaccumulation is very, very important. And there's very, very little uh, limited research and studies out there. And we see it because we... we um, act more from a, uh, a big picture model of how's the body as a whole. And you can start to see consequences of sluggish liver, sluggish bowel, sluggish uh, kidney function from this bioaccumulation. And um, it, can be, it can be dressed up a little bit and even uh, treated with uh, medications and things like that, but the bioaccumulation continues. And so that's the real problem is this bioaccumulation because we are basically the filters for the toxic world that we live in. And so that has much, much more impact. And we really haven't measured that very well. And uh, for all the talk about um, toxicity in our environment, you'd think we'd actually do more research when you look at everything as a whole versus we need both. We need, we need the individual toxicity doses and levels of individual chemicals, but we also need to address the bioaccumulation part of this. Yeah. One of my favorite websites for looking at these environmental chemicals, the Environmental Working Group has assessments on on chemicals for both products that you might use, skincare, hair care, things like that, but also tap water. They have a tap water database. Yeah. And it's fascinating to go in and, and terrifying a little bit to type in your zip code <laughs> yeah. and select, you know, your city or whatever if you're on a, on city water. And it will show different things that they've tested and it will compare their environmental working group assigned safe level and the FDA's safe safe level and how one how different they are yes two how many of those chemicals don't have safety levels according to the government at all mm-hmm. and three how many of these chemicals I think in, in my area where I and I'm in Apple Valley here in Minnesota I think it might be between eight and 13 of those toxins are above their considered safe level yes. in the tap water and they don't even test for everything they show what no. they test for it's just a handful well that's kind of the problem too because we are we, we are um, progressing as far as making products and so when it comes to the to actually new products we, we're far outpacing what we can assess we're making new things all the time new yeah. chemicals mm-hmm. all the time and so there's thousands if not tens of thousands made every year yeah. that that are just adding to the list so we're getting to a point where this, uh, we don't even know what we don't know because of just how much innovation there's been, mm-hmm. which can be good and bad. And it's one of those things where, um, we, we have a, a, a statement here or a quote that we often use. And if God made it, it's good. If man changed it or made it, just be aware because we tend not to get it right or better yet, there's consequences to man made things. They may help in one area and then cause a problem in, in another area. So we see that all the time. Yeah, we do. I'm sure the FDA hasn't caught up on that 85,000 chemicals. Yet, no, we seem to be losing ground. <laughs> it's like uh, it's similar to the 
our, our debt. Yes. <laughs> the, 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 the debt clock keeps going the wrong direction. At some point, the number is so high, it doesn't have any meaning anymore. Yeah, exactly. That's another yeah. couple thousand. Couple well, and we're kind of there. And so <laughs> yeah. we're, we're, as we're cleaning things up, we, there's a lot of work we need to, to do with this, but uh, we're essentially the filters uh, mm-hmm. for the world. So there are other things other than um, man-made chemicals, too, mm-hmm. that are still considered... Uh, toxins. We do a, a test here called the total tox burden, which is a good indicator. Uh, what are the, some of the things that are checked on there? Yeah. So it comes in three categories. Uh, the environmental toxins, which we've talked about mostly here. And that, it's, I don't remember how many, but it's a wide range of pesticides. Um, glyphosate from Roundup is in there. Uh, things from plastics, things from solvents. So basically chemicals, paints, uh, even sprays and gasoline fumes, a, a, yeah. a lot of different things. It might, it might be on the order of 40 to 60, maybe different, different things just on the environmental chemical side. Yeah. So that, that's a big one. Um, the next one is mycotoxins, which are mold based toxins. Not all, not all molds are toxic, but some molds create toxins that are detrimental to health. And some people are actually more sensitive to mold, too. They have a genetic predisposition. So even the non-toxic molds can still impact their health in a mild to moderate way. Yeah, there can be allergies to mold, which is a specific type of immune response. But there can also be these toxins from mold that are more of this accumulation inflammation issue. And it's not just uh, the mold, like mold that's in your house. It can be mold in our food. And it's not just that either. It can be... Um, the food that's fed to the cattle or the animals that are being consumed, if there's mold in that food, which then gets into that animal, which then gets into that animal's milk, which then gets into that uh, animal's or cheese, yeah, cheese things like that, there, there are ways for that uh, to actually be transferred to people. Milk, cheese, yogurt, um, even with the processing of uh, the dairy. And actually, funny enough, um, some of the research shows that uh, the dairy that is raw doesn't have the problems that the dairy that is pasteurized does with these mycotoxins. So that is interesting. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that's because those cows tend to be raised healthier? I, I do. Processing? Yeah. So there's there's a scenario, but even the mold when it was introduced was not as significant. So I think there's an, uh, raw dairy is alive. Oh, it's a so microbiome. It's got, thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a microbiome mm-hmm. thing. And so the mold can't take over that microbiome. Whereas when you actually pasteurize it, uh, they, they're killing off the microbiome. Yeah. And so, and they kill off a lot of the active enzymes with that process. When they heat it, yeah. they denature the enzymes. And so you end up with a dead source of nutrients versus yeah. a live source of nutrients. Yeah. There's a big, big difference there. And so, um, that, that's an interesting study. And there's a, there's a lot to that. Mm. Things are a little backwards, I think, with how we run things uh, <laughs> my, sometimes. Yeah, but my neighbor is from England, and she's still very surprised that we pasteurize and refrigerate our eggs. Because yeah. in Europe, and I actually, I have chickens at my house, so I have eggs. And you can leave those. They're eggs actually up. outside his house. They're, oh, yeah, so they're people don't, yeah, don't yeah. send in. Not quite that bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but when you have an unpasteurized egg, if you don't wash it, you can keep it on the countertop for yeah. like a month, I yeah. think. Yeah. So that's... And they taste better too. <laughs> yes, they do. Yeah. All right. So mycotoxins, and and then the the fourth or th- sorry third category is uh, heavy metals. The two most common heavy metals are lead and mercury. Those yeah. are the, the two that people have heard of the most. Um, but we sometimes see obscure ones show up on a heavy metal test. Uranium. I have one that just popped up that has thorium in there. Some radioactive materials, depending on where yeah. people live. And uh, aluminum, aluminum. yeah, yep. uh, some of those. And so looking at, again, those accumulate just like these other environmental toxins do. Yeah, and things that are more natural to our soil and uh, our world, we we do need some of these metals in very, very low amounts. But the, the heavy metals really got used a lot in industry. And so we've seen a, a significant spike in the last 150 years in these uh, heavy metals because of the industry. And so industrial revolution, if you will. And so we're exposed to a lot more than we ever used to. And it's not just us. Again, these metals get put up into the atmosphere. And then because they're heavier, they fall down into the land, into the water. And uh, and things like fish and uh, um, you know what I just animals saw? can actually have yeah. problems with that. So bald eagles in the U.S., it's estimated that 50% of them are lead toxic. 
Yeah, fifty percent. That's crazy. And part of it is because of lead from from hunting gets into animals, and then those animals are eaten. But some of it is also, is also the water supply and the toxicity there. Fifty percent. That, that's a lot. That is a lot. And so, uh, interestingly enough, that's one of the things that causes baldness in men too, is lead toxicity. Not that eagles are yeah bald eagles. <laughs> That might have been a dad joke. Yeah. Yes. I didn't even catch that one. Really? Yeah, no, I, but everyone uh, needs to know that. Uh, so I've been uh, saying dad jokes for many, many years. And my proudest moment is when Dr. Josh says a dad joke these days. He's, we already know he's brilliant with all the, the science and everything like that. But when he pops out a dad joke, it's just awesome. Yes. I think you're the only one that laughs at that. I am, though. That's a, but that's all that matters. Sometimes they're, I don't say dad jokes for everyone else. They're for me. That's a good point. Yeah. I wish my, my kids are young enough to appreciate them. Yes. So my oldest is only five. So they, they'll like them, jokes. and then they won't, and, they and won't then they'll miss them later. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So as far as that test goes, I think we should mention the total tox burden testing. That's a urine test. And I want to talk a little bit about the pros and the cons of urine testing for these yes. toxins. So urine testing is, is good because it's easy, it's cheap, but it's also not validated necessarily for some of these because of the way that it can change from person to person. Yes. What I tell a person or patient when they come in is a urine test is a good way to view current exposures yes. or things that your body is trying to get rid of. I don't always like it for repeat testing yeah. because... For instance, if you were to do a urine test and find mold toxins and heavy metals and all these things that we're talking about, and then we do a repeat test in two months after we've done something, if the toxins are higher on that test, we might say, oh, well, maybe you're clearing that better. Yes. If it's lower on that test, maybe we'd say, oh, maybe you're getting rid of it. May, you maybe it your burden is lessened. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, we could also say if you don't, if the test is lower, we might say, well, maybe you're storing more. Yes. And if it's higher, maybe you're more exposed. Right. So it's very difficult to track that test, test to test like that. And it's a good way to exactly. gain initial exposure. Well, and that's why, and I really want you to hear this because that's the number one um thing I see when people have had testing done with other doctors and everything, and maybe the doctor doesn't quite understand uh, what's going on with that, you can't treat it like a blood sugar test mm -hmm. where uh, the difference does does make a deal, um, the difference in the blood sugar measurement. So you, you want to look at the big picture of how you're feeling, what function has improved in your body, if any, what other markers have improved in your body, and you have to pay attention to those markers. Mm -hmm. Here at Synapse, we'll look at things like questionnaires and have them refill out questionnaires to get some of the subtle stuff and changes. We'll do a bioimpedance analysis to see if there's been a fluid shift, which is one of my favorite ones because uh, fluid shifts in, internally are one of the biggest identifiers of overall health changes. And if you're detoxifying, we can actually see a negative fluid shift because of the stress of detoxifying on your system. And that makes sense if you're in an active detox process. Doesn't make sense if you're doing everything right and not actively detoxifying and some symptoms haven't changed. So, so you have to look at how you're feeling, what other measurements are improving. And uh, I like to use it, uh, again, to determine what types of things do we need to support because a lot of times, uh, we have to continue to support the main detoxifying areas of the body. So as far as detoxification pathways, we're talking about the liver, the intestines, the kidneys, the lungs, and the skin. That, that's how we detoxify. And, and sweating is one of the best ways to detoxify um, if you can stay hydrated, number one. But getting the bowels moving. I'm just going to say this too. For as you age we accumulate more of these toxins. And so if your liver's working and it's pulling the toxins from the body, from the lymph, it'll be dumping them into the colon and the digestive system has to eliminate that. So fiber and keeping your bowels moving is one of the best things you can do just to eliminate toxins on a daily basis. Fiber comes from vegetables, 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 fruit, and then, of course, you can uh, you can add some fiber and shakes and stuff like that. But just getting the fiber going and making sure your bowels are moving is a great way to maintain that detoxification pathway. Because for me, the liver bowel is the primary mm -hmm. mode of, uh, of export and then the kidneys. Yeah. I like to think of detox as a, a chain of like conveyor belts where you have to like 
put the junk or the toxin at the front of the conveyor belt, and it's got to move all the way through these different steps. Yes. And that process is only as fast as your slowest point on that conveyor belt. Yeah. And that, to your point, if you're constipated and you don't have good bowel function, everything in front of that point is going to get backed up and backlogged from from the gallbladder and liver and kidneys to the lymph and into the cells. Sometimes the the break point is somewhere else. We see lymph problematic in a lot of people. Um, But assessing uh, um, those different points of detoxification is necessary when we're discussing toxins. Ultimately, this is a problem of garbage in versus garbage out. Yes. Everybody has garbage coming in, and everybody should be taking garbage out. The beauty of the testing is to identify and reduce garbage coming in and knowing how to promote for that individual person the garbage taking out or collection process. Yes. Yeah, and I, I think uh, everyone's a little different. Some people, uh, fiber kind of in the beginning can bind them up, and so you have to play with that a little bit, and you have to make sure your water is being brought to the bowels for the fiber because there's two types of fiber, and one is a bulking fiber, and the other one is an insoluble fiber that rubs up against the colon wall. So you have to have enough water in the GI tract, and magnesium is one of the things that can aid in that process quite a bit. And so you might be surprised how much magnesium you need. It's the number two deficiency worldwide. It's involved in over 400 different enzyme reactions in the body. So as you're trying to detoxify, magnesium is a very, very important uh, component of that. And so uh, and our muscles need it, our brain needs it. Mm-hmm. So for the bowels in particular, magnesium citrate and glycinate um, I like quite a bit. There's magnesium salts, which don't get absorbed into the body at all, whereas magnesium citrate and glycinate will. However, I'll say this, some people can't tolerate the citrate because of the form it's in, especially if there's fungus or mycotoxins uh, that they're reacting to, they tend to be more reactive to the citrate. So I like magnesium glycinate for that. Uh, magnesium 3 and 8 for the brain uh, and sleep at nighttime. But uh, glycinate works for the muscles, cardiovascular, and for the bowels. So we'll have people sometimes, women, um, especially if there's weight loss that's needed, we'll have to get between 2,000 and 3,000 milligrams a day with magnesium. Men can sometimes be up as high as three to 4,000. The average, I would say, settles out somewhere around 800 milligrams in the beginning uh, to get people having one to two good bowel movements a day and when you when you get that part of it right you'll be shocked just how much better you feel as far as toxic overload mm-hmm. it is amazing we do a red blood cell magnesium test and it's suboptimal in 95 plus percent of the people yeah. we test yeah. I, I rarely get someone in the normal range mm-hmm. on that. rarely yeah yeah all right let's see here so we've talked about the basics of that test um, are there any particular toxic chemicals that you want to highlight um, for me, uh, I would probably focus on glyphosate um, as the main toxic chemical, be just because it's still um, being used. It's still there's a lot of uh, arguments in the in the community, the food community, and I'm just I'm going to say it this way: it has been recognized by medical doctors more than ever right now. Zach Bush has done a great job. Doctor Bush has done a great job. Uh, talking about it. And uh, Dr. Stephanie uh, Seneff from MIT did the, a lot of the original research on it as far as its impact on the body, uh, the, the liver enzymes in particular, the, the bowels and some of the other areas in the body. And I'm just going to say this. There's a lot of uh, misinformation coming from the food science world because this is their moneymaker and this is this is something they you know, as part of their agriculture and stuff. And so uh, there's not a lot of listening when it comes to the doctors who are treating some of these disorders. And we're seeing as a population, all you have to do is look at the population. On the CDC website, they have a great uh, slide deck on just obesity in the United States. And there's a lot of factors to that. Yes, we're eating a lot uh, uh, more food. But when you look at the trends in the obesity on their own website, as far as dad tracking, in the 1980s, they had a category for uh, 10% obesity. There was only one state that was above 10% obesity at that time. I believe it was Alabama. Um, 
And then as it went through the 90s, they had to add in 15% obesity category. And then they had to add a 20% obesity category. And these are states. And then it just kept growing. As you get into the late 90s, all of a sudden there's a 30% obesity, meaning 30% of the population was clinically obese. And uh, through the early 2000s, all of a sudden it's 35% and then 40%. And then we got to 50%. The trend is not good. And all of the factors that go into obesity is um, going to contribute to our overall health. Obesity is one of the main uh, indicators of poor health as far as uh, degenerative diseases like heart disease, cancers. Even uh, for things like COVID, there was, uh, there's components there. And so... When you look at obesity, that is our lifestyle. That's our environment around us. The food that we're eating and the, the environment, uh, and we haven't even gotten into stressful relationships, but that plays into it as well. And so the, the bottom line is you do not have to look all that hard to realize that our food and our lifestyle is contributing to disease. And these food scientists that are trying to argue that it's safe, need to be put in jail, <laughs> my opinion, <laughs> because they're harming our communities and they don't know it. And they're, they're hiding behind um, bad science and not even that. Uh, we've talked a little bit about um, uh, Stephanie Seneth uh, has also released some information recently uh, about COVID and the vaccines and how it can affect some of the similarities with what she sees with glyphosate. And as I was discerning through the information, uh, there's actually, it's quite a high-end conversation. Um, I had to listen to it two or three times to get, wrap my mind around it, what she was saying. She's quite brilliant. But when I look at the other side of the conversation, which I always do because I like to get a sense of what uh, other scientists are saying or, or people are saying, she, I couldn't find anyone who was arguing her scientific points. Instead, they were attacking her as a person. And we've had this conversation before where, where it's important to discern, are they, are they coming up with good, valid points against the science of what she's saying, or are they just attacking the person? And one of the articles I saw just said, she's not a food scientist, so she wouldn't know about food. No, but she did a study on the effect of glyphosate on our DNA, on our, on our cytochrome P450. And so, and she breaks it down uh, quite quite detailed and so they didn't even touch on the science there was no argument about the science that's a hit piece that's stuff that has to be recognized by people so you can start to see what's good information and what's bad and that's someone trying to predict and this one came out of mcgill university up in canada so mm -hmm. i'm really distraught that these canadian i almost <laughs> went to mcgill <laughs> good, my, thing my, my, good thing i didn't apparently so i was very uh troubled by that one particular article. There was nothing uh, scientific about the, that particular um, article about what she was saying. And in the beginning, and, and right now she's hypothesizing and uh, releasing some preliminary data with her paper stuff, but she also hypothesized, I remember when she hypothesized about glyphosate years ago, like 20 years ago, and um, what she ended up saying has come out yeah. and has, has proven to be true. And that's with very limited studies because you, you don't get the funding for things like this because you've got a lot of funding going in the opposite direction. So we, we, we have to clean up our food. That's, that's our food and our air matter so much when it comes to our overall health. And our food is much more toxic than our air right now. We have a lot of the focus on air and our food is way more toxic than our air right now. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about why we focus on glyphosate from a health perspective because it's not it's not like we're picking that out of a out of a hat with a bunch of other random pesticides or chemicals right it does right. something very specific inside our body that's different the way that i think about it and tell people about this is that glyphosate is like the the roadblock that causes all of your other detoxification to stop yes right and so it's this it's this double-edged sword where not only are you needing to detoxify from it but because it's present not only can you not detoxify it, you can't detoxify other things either. Yes. That's one of the biggest problems because mm -hmm. anything that impacts our cytochrome P450, which is an enzyme system within the liver, um, it not not only detox, stops that detoxification, like you said, but mm -hmm. other things that have to go through that pathway uh, become congested. It's like a traffic jam in your liver. Yep. And then when that happens, our lymph backs up. Yeah. 
The other thing that it does is compromises glutathione. This is one of the other theories here. So gly, I'll try. I'm going to get a little bit technical. I'll try not to go too far. Yeah. There's a there's an. I'll amino- follow you. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so there's an amino acid. Amino acids are proteins. Right. When so you and when you eat chicken or steak or even plant food that has proteins, you've got a bunch of amino acids that make up that protein. One of the amino acids is called glycine. Glycine does a lot in the body. It helps with collagen formation. It helps with with bile function. It helps with sleep and brain regulation. And, it, and it's one of the three key building blocks to, to glutathione. Glutathione is your body's primary antioxidant. It's like a fire hose. So if your body has inflammation, you're going to want to spray that inflammation with a hose to try to get that yeah. to calm down. And it's that, a heavy hitter. And that's the glutathione. So glycine is in glutathione. For glyphosate, gly and glyphosate stands for glycine. It is a glycine-modified structure. So they are very, very similar. Similar, So similar, in fact, that it seems like the glyphosate directly competes with the glycine so that your body will take the glyphosate and put it into structures where it shouldn't go. Yes. So, for instance, the the glutathione is going to take three pieces, one of them being glycine, but it may mistake that for or may mistake the glyphosate that's present for the glycine. The bottom line is basically anything then that requires glycine in your body, which is a lot of stuff, is going to be compromised in the presence of, of glyphosate. And luckily, though, we can take glycine. One of the best ways to try to out, you have to outcompete this. You have to outcompete the glyphosate issue, and you can do that by giving glycine. It's one of the best things out there that you can do. Glycine is found naturally in foods, but it's found in a lot of foods that we don't eat very much as a society. It's the collagens, the skin, and the bone, the bone broth. Uh, but you know, naturally, we don't eat that very often. Yeah. And so I, it's been said that the majority of the population runs a glycine deficit where we have to turn over and use glycine, but we just don't have enough there to meet demand. Taking glycine, which it luckily tastes like sugar, it's actually quite pleasant to take, is a good way to try to protect against this problem. Yeah, I'm going to, this is going to be a game changer for a lot of people too. When you're deficient in glycine that's affecting collagen, your hair, this is for the ladies here, your hair doesn't grow as well, your nails don't grow as well, and your skin wrinkles. So by just improving this one component, it legitimately slows down the aging process and you can help to reverse a lot of these compromised areas. And we're seeing um, right now post-COVID, and Stephanie Seneff talks about this as far as COVID and the vaccines inducing a similar response to the glyphosate. And I cannot tell you how many uh, uh, men and women have come in uh, talking about hair loss and talking about changes with their their uh, skin and nails uh, as well, and so there's an, there's a hit there, if you will, to the collagen uh, component of what's going on here post COVID and post vaccinations, the mRNA vaccines. Yeah, yeah, taking collagen powder is popular too because that you know, glycine is twenty percent of that of that collagen powder. So if you're doing that, that's good. You know, glycine powder itself is cheaper, especially if you've got sleep problems too. Taking yeah, absolutely that can really help with sleep. Yes. All right. There's other some other impacts of glyphosate. Is there anything you want to cover in particular? Um, so what we're seeing right now is uh, um, other than the liver component and the the toxicity and and the depletion of glutathione because it doesn't mm-hmm. actually uh, one of the fixes is to is to get more glutathione in your body and so. Uh, we'll do IV glutathione here, but uh, certain things like N-acetylcysteine can help uh, you make more glutathione as well. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of other factors. And what tends to happen is when you start to lose the glutathione, you get bioaccumulation of heavy metals. So one problem can start to lead to the other problem. And uh, uh, Stephanie Seneth, I don't want to get too deep into this uh, um, part, but... Uh, She's talking about also the impact on guanine, which is in the DNA and RNA of our body, which then uh, can potentially cause some challenges um, with our DNA, DNA and RNA, which can be linked eventually to certain cancers. Uh, but she's linking it to neurodegenerative problems, and she's going through the process of how it can create the neurofibrillatory tangles in our brain that, are, that we see with dementia and Alzheimer's. And it's early, early on uh, with what she's um, speculating about, but um, it is still a fair, it's a very well thought out 
uh, scenario and needs to be proven out um, but uh, and paid attention to. Uh, but the mechanisms are similar to uh, glyphosate as well. So there is there's components there where DNA and RNA can actually be uh, affected in a negative way. Yeah. And so, again, they've changed our food supply. We need to pay attention because if things start alternating or fooling with our DNA and our RNA, that's a game changer. That's yeah. that's that's the stuff that changes us, and mm-hmm. that's that's how cancers occur, and that's how uh, uh, more serious degenerative diseases occur and, and mutations occur. So yeah. it's important for us to stay on top of this topic and, and keep our, our bodies as clean as possible. And, again, Roundup generally is in not in high amounts in organic food. And so we try and have people eat as clean as possible. The more we demand it and the more we ask for it, the cheaper it's going to get. And I I say this all the time. They should not call organic food organic. They should call it food and call the other food toxic food because (laughs) that's really what it is. 200 years ago, it was food. It wasn't organic. Everything was organic 200 years ago. So it was food. And the fact that they play play with the wording and stuff like that just drives me nuts because it was food. It's always been food. And because they made man-made chemicals that altered it, they changed the name to organic food because it's the lesser of the two. And it's the opposite. Yeah. You know, I just saw, I was walking through Target looking for salsa. And on one of the cans, this, I think this is a way that, they, that's, that there's a label recommendation or a label change for how you denote um, genetically modified organisms. Yeah. Because it said made with bioengineered ingredients or something yes. like that on the, on the bottom part of that, on yeah. that salsa can. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, I had never, I'd never seen that before. But I think if you see that, that means that it's genetically modified yeah. or, um, organism, GMO. One of the biggest problems with GMO, they make things GMO so that it's resistant to sprays like, like Roundup. Yes. And so that's, you know, the GMOs can have their own problems. Part of the bigger issue too is those are going to have pesticides and, and chemicals and Roundup and things like that likely in there too. Yeah. So let me just highlight what you just said there. They made a chemical to make it safer for their chemical laden, yeah. <laughs> not because it's good for your body. Yes. So that's, that's the, the problem. That's the same as, uh, I'm not against medications, but it's the same as taking medication, getting a side effect, taking a side medication for the side effect of that medication. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, you're on 16 medications. Yeah. When you do that to our food supply, you're, you're constantly chasing the rabbit down this toxic pathway of undoing what you just caused. Meanwhile, if God made it good, it was right, it worked for us, why did we influence things? And I, I get... I get, you know, trying to mass produce food, yeah. um, but we can use that same brilliance in, in getting some micro farming done. And in, we have enough stuff right now where we can actually have little farms in our own houses right now, growing food and, and same with our, our superstore, our, our shopping centers here. Um, we, sh- I shop at one where they have an actual garden right there now. It's by the road, so it's going to be getting some stuff. <laughs> I'd like to see cleaner uh, places, but uh, we now know you can grow food on top of buildings. You can grow food all mm-hmm. over the place. And so we we should be looking at air, areas and things like that and using our creativity that way to grow good food source. We do really need an improved food source for us to continue, not all this scientifically modified uh, stuff. And so... It, it feels like a pyramid scheme, not intentionally, <laughs> but it does because yeah. of the way that you really get stuck between a rock and a hard place with the with the food production issues. Yeah, because we're in a spot now, depending on locations in the world and famine and th- those potentials, where you feel like you need to have more and more growth of crops. Yeah, and that's not a bad thing. A lot of the people who are working on these issues and creating chemicals are not doing it out of malice. No, and we've talked about the yep. discernment part of that before. They're looking to optimize crop growth. Yeah. The problem is we've depleted soil so much that we have to support growth of these crops in an unnatural way that we shouldn't have to do, if not for the depletion of the soil. Yeah, the problem is they're creating food to create food. Mm. They're not creating food to nutrient our body. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the problem. It's not... It's about the calories. It's about the calories and stuff. So yeah. it's, it's kind of like the equivalent of... Uh, just, you know, taking a 3D printer mm-hmm. and creating an apple. 
Like, how, well, how's that going to serve our body by, you know, ingesting that plastic-laden apple? It's not. And we're slowly getting to that point with how they've modified our food. There needs to be more influence from people who understand how the body works, people who are healthy, uh, and uh, who, who get that we need these nutrients in our food. And the apple or the whatever is being planted in the crop gets its nutrients from the seed and the soil. And so those things matter. And we are uh, not doing a good job with that. And so a lot of these food producers need to be speaking with the healthcare professionals who understand nutrition. It's a big, big part of it. And so we're doing our role in that, I'm going to say, by um, educating as many people as possible. And I will say there's been a lot more information or pushback coming from doctors and healthcare practitioners who truly understand how the body works and what it needs to establish that foundational um, nutrient status to help the functioning of your cells in, in, in the totality. So let's just touch base uh, real briefly on the other part of environment um, that can be relationships. And so it's not just uh, the air, um, which again, in that we've talked about in the past, how house uh, air and mold exposure can uh, impact that. But we also want to look at the environment as a whole, and uh, um, that includes relationships. So toxic relationships can impact uh, your health quite a bit uh, as well. And we could probably do a whole show on that, but uh, just want to touch base real briefly on the impact of stress and potential toxic relationships and um, the, the environment other than the food environment. Um, we've got, uh, other than the, the toxic environment, uh, we've got relationships and then we have things like uh, pets and how, as a society, we are becoming more reactive to the world we're living in. Yeah. From a relationship perspective, I think it's easy for people to want to, for their health in general, take a supplement or, or a medication, really from the base level. Take, give me a pill so I can fix all my problems, right? Yes. You can kind of scale up from there, it's supplements or diet, and it, it becomes more challenging when you have to work on your your mental health, yeah. your relationships, because those take more effort than popping a pill every day. Yes. And so toxic relationships and stress can trump anything else that we want to do with a person, yeah. even if they've got a good diet and even if they take are taking the right supplements. If they go home and have a bad relationship with their spouse or if their work is terribly stressful, you know, you can't really get around that. No, and, and literally our cells will, will fold over uh, like, a, like a frightened child and block the receptor site. So even if you're eating perfectly, you're not absorbing the nutrients as efficiently in a stress state. So it's important to be addressing those stressed states. And generally speaking, this is a real general statement, we need to slow down and just pay attention to our, our lives a little bit more. And uh, generally speaking, we have to control what we control and surrender the rest. And identifying what that looks like in your life is very, very important. And a lot of times, like control and excess when we're trying to control too much, it actually comes from a good place. It, it comes from caring too much you nurture in excess becomes controlling. And so you try and control the environment around you to the point of staying in control and that becomes your stressor. So surrender is a big, big part of it. And Tony Robbins actually said it best when he said the most successful people in life become comfortable with the uncomfortableness of life, meaning that life will be uncomfortable and that's okay and keep moving through it. We call it failing forward. And so it's, the process of learning to surrender becomes such a key component because we can't control a lot in our world. We really can't. Yeah. The concept of self-care is an important one, too. It's it's typically foreign, especially for us guys, to, to do things. Because self-care, if you think about that, you think, oh, I'm going to get a... Well, this is how I think about it. Get a massage, get a manicure, things like that. Like, I don't really want to do that type of thing. Yes. But being able to take time... To disconnect in yeah. some way is critical for everybody. Yeah. Some guys will go fishing. Some guys will go to the gym. Mm -hmm. Some guys will, will uh, these are healthy 
options. Um, yeah. Many many guys go to alcohol, which is the unhealthy version. Yes. Um, and many women go to uh, food, which is also an unhealthy uh, version. And so, um, men, it's alcohol. Uh, women, it's chocolate. Just as a <laughs> <laughs> as a generality. Just as a generality. Very general statement. Yeah. But uh, um, it's important to take uh, a step back, and and truthfully, we're meant to um, talk through our stressors. So if you're married and uh, it, it's important to do your best to uh, get into a space where you can be honest and open with your spouse and talk through things, knowing that uh, I'm just going to put this guardrail up. Women uh, do your best to not try and have uh, your the, the men think like women and men stop trying to have the women think like men <laughs> because we just process information differently and we need different things. So what helps for one may not help for that. Now, sometimes that's not true, but you have to talk about that and explore that to understand that. Uh, men, uh, most men do not know how to communicate properly. So that's another thing. A lot of times they try and fix things right away instead of just listening or they take the load on, which is a good thing because that shows that they care. Um, so there has to be some level of of good communication there and that is a whole podcast in its own right and usually that's some uh, classes uh, some churches i'm going to say have good classes and some have bad classes <laughs> when it comes to this so just be discerning uh, some therapists have good counsel and bad counsel when it comes to it so there are different programs out there and uh, i find that when you don't have a spouse that's on board with it. It becomes much, much harder. And then there's an extra level of surrender that occurs when one spouse engaged and the other one's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I wanted to say just a general thing about, you mentioned pets. Yes. I want to say something not specifically about pets, but about allergies real quick. Yes. So allergies to me are an indicator of a person losing their tolerance. Yes. And the tolerance is lost very often because of the toxic burden that we just discussed. Yes. Right? And so allergies, whether it's from an animal or from an environment or even from food, those develop when the body can't regulate the immune function uh, and the immune response to those allergens. Yes. Uh, in an ideal situation, you are exposed to these allergens like pollen all the time and your, your immune system kind of ignores it, doesn't do anything. But when a person is toxic and has these toxic chemicals or toxic relationships, your protection mechanisms break down. And allergies then are often a very good sign of your own ability to uh, protect yourself against toxins and, and have it and whether or not you have a toxic burden to begin with and what's the most important thing a person can do to help with that just to start not saying it's going to fix everything but uh what uh, uh I'll, I'll go into what dr orso said oh, uh, yeah, yeah you know what i'm talking about <laughs> i thought of more than one i'm not sure yeah, where you're going <laughs> just go yeah we'll go with what dr orso uh, <laughs> stated yeah. but uh um what uh what can people do or pay yeah. attention to to help as a baseline well the specific thing that you're getting at is vitamin D. Yeah. Um, vitamin D is well known for its effect on bone. And so a lot of people will just think about vitamin D from a, from a bone perspective. Vitamin D, though, is also an immune regulator. This is why it's become more popular with COVID, is that you yeah. want a high enough vitamin D that your immune system orchestrates its response appropriately. That goes not only for an infection, but for an allergic response. If you don't have the regulation cells in your immune system working properly, it's like not having a teacher in the classroom, right? You got a bunch of, you know, fifth graders running around because they don't have anybody in the classroom. That's like your immune system without any regulation. And so they're going to break windows or they're going to, you know, spill stuff. And so the break windows, man, that's aggressive. (laughs) Well, I should have seen my high school. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, yeah. But point being, you know, vitamin D, then if you take that, is there to re-regulate your system? Yeah. There are a lot of things that do that. But vitamin D is, again, one of the, especially where we live, where we don't get sunshine for nine months out of the year, it's very commonly deficient. And people will get a blood test done. And that range of normal is misleading. We've talked about this before on other podcasts. The range is usually 30 to 100. Some doctors won't even care until you're below 15 or 10. Yeah. And they'll say, well, you're low now, you're at 10. But we know from research we need to be much more above that low end of normal to get optimal function. 
And we like, well, I'll say I like uh, between 50 and 80, as close to 80 as possible. And uh, I brought up Dr. Orsel before. He's an oncologist um, who had a fascinating interview as he was treating people for COVID. Um, they were coming back and recovering from COVID. And they were also saying, thank you for clearing up my allergies. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he said, what are you talking about? And he realized that it was the vitamin D. Yeah. So as an oncologist, he started testing his patients who had cancer, all had cancer. And he found out that they all, he said they all, you know, maybe one or two is normal, but uh, they all were deficient, all of his cancer patients. Vitamin D, we get from the sun, we get from some food, but if we're not in the sun um, and if we're not uh, um, getting the vitamin D from food sources, it just doesn't happen. The people who are most prone to vitamin D deficiencies are the very, very, very fair-skinned individuals who burn easily in the sun and then very, 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 very dark-skinned people who don't need to tan or not in the sun. Or they, There's both of those, uh, which happen to be in my family, <laughs> are the ones who tend to be most vitamin D deficient, those two extremes. And so, um, uh, interestingly enough, there is a, a, a fact out there one of our doctors brought up in a meeting that he knew I was going here. I did. Because it's so interesting. She found uh, an article that, that talked about how redheads can produce their own uh, vitamin D. doesn't mean they're deficient, so... Um, it, but it was, it's a real thing. So there's one, one study that shows that. And, uh, it was intriguing. That doesn't mean they're not deficient, but they have a better ability to regenerate their own. They've got their own bit of sunshine. They do internally. So redheads, <laughs> you're glowing. So fair skinned redheads might be the one exception to that. But, uh, uh, I thought that was kind of cool. That is cool. All right. Well, anything else as a last, uh, comment? The solution to pollution is dilution. Yes. A wise person once said. Yes. And so that's where, you know, getting enough fluid and hydration, we talked about that briefly, is yep. very important. And getting your body cleared out, bowels, exercise, sweating is the key, really. You're never going to avoid all the toxins. Try to, try to reduce it as much as possible, but you have to promote your detoxification. Well said. Real quick, can you talk about the 5K coming up? Wednesday oh, breaks? sure. So uh, we uh, recently uh, had our nonprofit status finally get approved, and uh, we at Synapse are doing a 5K race uh, to as a fundraiser here in Egan. So if you're local to the Twin Cities or even want to travel um, and come uh, meet us and, and talk with us and help us raise some funds, these funds go to patients who can't afford care um, when it comes to uh, functional medicine, a lot of uh, work is going into this already. So the 5K itself uh, is going to be fun. Um, the date that we're doing it is June 18th. June 18th, 2022. So June 18th, 2022. And we'll have some information on a uh, website. Yeah. By the time this is aired, it'll be on the website. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just go to our website uh, for that information and uh, just come and hang out. It's a run walk. It's for fun. Um, although when we brought that up, a couple of our people on our team who are very competitive said, well, how do we know who wins? <laughs> but uh, so for her, we may actually give her a little medal. But no for everyone what. else, it's yeah, no yeah. matter what. <laughs> but for for everyone else, it's, it's fun and it's for a good cause. Uh, we've already started um, raising funds and we're very thankful for the people who have already donated and uh, we're going to start interviewing some of the people that have been blessed by that already. So we thank you for any uh, anything you can do in advance. If you're not able to make it but still want to donate, there will be links there as well. And uh, so we appreciate that. It has officially got its 501c3 status. So um, if you need a receipt for any donations, uh, then we can also provide you with that. Thanks for remembering Marquis and uh, thanks again to uh, all of you who are listening and passing on the information.